We are in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. <clears throat> so Daniel 4 is, is not specifically clear. I'm sure somebody has it figured out, and I don't know it um, exactly how far removed from chapter 3 we are. We are it is chronologically, it is the next chapter. Uh, the book doesn't go off, you know, all askew until the next chapter, chapter four. Next thing we'll study is chapter seven to stay chronological. But it is, it is what directly follows chapter three. But how much of a gap between three and four there is, I don't know. There, Nebuchadnezzar himself ruled over Babylon, you know, round number about forty years. It's a little bit more than that, but about forty years, good round number. I don't remember the exact. Um, so you have three major events that take place in chapters 2, 3, and 4 within that roughly a generation's worth of, of reign. Um, three huge events is a lot for one person in the Bible, uh, especially someone who's not you know, one of God's people. You know, Abraham, he had a big event like every other chapter, but Nebuchadnezzar, to get three big moments in the sun in a row, that's a huge deal. You would think it would leave an impression on him. And at the end of each one of these three chapters, we've already covered two, we're about to get the next one here, he, he makes some grand declarations. He makes some big words and some big promises about how great God is and how much, oh, he really respects God. And it just seems like, you know, it doesn't really take. You know, he says at the end of chapter 2, after he gets the vision, and Daniel interprets it, and he says, oh, wow, your God's the best. And then by the time you get to chapter 3, he's ready to Hansel and Gretel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not worshiping one of his idols. He did, they didn't take. But at the end of chapter 3, he says, oh, wow, your God's the best. Like, this is news to him. And then you come to chapter 4, and, well, we'll see. Nothing seems to stick with him. And then you re realize, well, it makes sense, in a sense, not to excuse him, that you have these three events, yeah, in our Bible, that's like five pages, right, of text, back to back, boom, boom, boom. It may be decade, decade and a half, two decades in between some of these events. Time passes. And if, if it doesn't really stick immediately, it's not going to stick. It, it, it's not one of those things where you just keep thinking about it and keep thinking about it and eventually after 10 years of waffling you decide to follow Jesus. That's just not how people are. They decide to follow Jesus and then they go all in. Nebuchadnezzar made some big words, but he never really wanted to do what he was saying. He never really committed himself to following Christ. And it's proven in chapter 3 based on what he said in chapter 2. It's proven in chapter 4 that what he said in chapter 3 was just lit. So that's your introduction. This chapter is about how God is in control and humbles kings by his will. If you remember when I put on the board in week one the, uh, the different rings and how the beginning and the end of Daniel kind of fit the same theme about going into and leaving exile and then a slightly more inner ring continues that theme of God um, making promises and predictions about his coming kingdom and then slightly more within that ring are God rescuing his people from hardships whether that's the lion's den we'll get to later or the three in the fiery furnace we had last week but then right there in the middle of the bullseye the core of the book what really is the thesis what you're supposed to take away from this whole thing is this chapter chapter four which is that God is in control and God humbles kings really it's four and five by his goodwill so let's see that play out here with Nebuchadnezzar let's look at verse number one and I want you to notice the different way that it starts versus the previous chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, very much Daniel the historian telling you, and then this happened. And then on this occasion, in the year here, this happened. But Daniel 4 doesn't start like that. It just begins with, <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. What does that sound like? Politician? 
A politician in what way? Like, elaborate. Uh, wishing the people well for making them think he did. He was wishing them well. Sure. Okay. A letter, an address. Hmm. A letter or an address. Yeah. It, doesn't it kind of sound like the epistles, even like when Paul's epistles? You know, he he starts his letters kind of like that. You know, Paul, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace be unto you and grace from God our Father. You know, and then he dives into the letter. Very similar. It is, like Bill says, it's a political speech. He's going to butter himself up. He's also going to be very candid about God humbling him, which is the theme of the chapter. But what I want you to take away from this is different from chapters 1, 2, and 3. Is it's not written from the perspective of Daniel the historian just recording history by the inspiration of God. But rather, it is Daniel the king's... Um, uh, amanuensis. It's the king's uh, secretaries, the king's letter writerer, recording a decree from the king. You got to imagine now, get in your head. Imagine Nebuchadnezzar sitting on his throne and he calls forth his secretary, who happens to be Daniel, and he says, All right, take this down. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar the king, and Daniel starts writing, unto all people and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Well, obviously, people in like Spain. Are never going to hear this in his lifetime. People in South America are never going to hear this in his lifetime. But when you're a king who is the king over Babylon, some huge expansive empire, which I am going to draw on the board here in just a minute. When you're a king over this big expansive empire, you tend to think, well, I'm the king of everything. And so that's what he addresses his letter to, to everybody, because I'm your king. Peace be multiplied unto you. Here is what happened to me today. Verse 2. I thought it good to show you the signs and wonders that the high God has wrought toward me. Notice the high God has accomplished this. The high God, not Baal or Ashdod or any other God that he may serve or have heard of. But this is the God of Daniel. We are, we are recording, we, we are reading something that was recorded after everything in this chapter took place, right? It's not like written in real time. And then he said this, and then he said that it's like, here is the text of what I've just gone through and we're going to record it for posterity. And I'm going to tell you about this God who at first I didn't really appreciate, but now I do. A theme which perpetuates in these opening chapters. About that God, verse 3, he says, How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Let's break down some of these words of praise, these platitudes. How great are his signs, the King James says. Does your Bible say signs? Everybody says signs. How great are his demonstrations of his awesomeness. And how mighty are his wonders. Very, very frequently. In fact, if you did a word search, I'd be shocked how many times it didn't come up. Uh, very frequently, signs and wonders are coupled together in very close proximity, as they are here. They're two different words. It's just one is what God does, and one is what I do. God gives me the sign, and I wonder. God gives me the thing, and I marvel at it. So God demonstrates his awesomeness, and I drop my jaw and say gasp. So how great are his signs, and how mighty is the result those signs produce, the shock and awe and the splendor of them that they produce in people. Then he says his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, something which Daniel has already hinted at in the vision of chapter 2 when he interpreted it for him, something which he'll prophesy in chapter 7 later. But here, Nebuchadnezzar mentions it. Now, maybe that's just because he's reflecting on what was said to him back in what we call chapter 2. Or maybe he's just putting it together, the vision he's already seen, which we're about to read about. That he's understanding, which if that's the case, just to spoil it for you, he's basically recognizing, I am the king of this giant kingdom, but I'm about to be, or I have been humbled tremendously by God, and nobody can humble God. 
And he is the king over kingdom that can never be humbled, that will never be cut down, whose, whose growth will only increase and will never be cut as mine's going to be, or has been. Remember, right in this past tense. Matthew? Yes. In uh, verse 2, where uh -huh. he says, Most high God has worked for me. Is he still trying to get a little bit of credit for this? I, I don't think in this case he is, because remember, we're, we're reading this after the fact. He's been humbled, all right? So I think all he's saying is, I want to show you what God has accomplished, what God has done to me. And what if you keep reading, it's very clear, and he writes in his own words, he is humbled and, and put in his place very, very, um, you know, yeah. profoundly. So I think it's it's more just him saying, look what God did to me. Not, look how great I am. That's that's how this is going to start with him saying that, and then he gets smacked down. But it's like, look how much God has smacked me down, is I think what he's saying in verse 2. All right, verse 3 again. How great are his signs, mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting. His dominion, the expanse of his power and authority, his rule, his reign, is from generation to generation. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, who, though he doesn't know this, is going to rule for about a generation and then die. And then someone else will pick up his domain and make it his own domain. But God just keeps on living. It's one of those things that makes him God. He just keeps on going. So his domain, if God has a kingdom, once God decides, I'm going to be king, who could ever unseat him? Who could ever usurp him? How could he ever abdicate? He will just forever be king. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Verse 4. So that's his opening remarks, his big words of praise. And then he says, here's what happened. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house. And the King James says, flourishing in my palace. Literally, I was content and prospering. Everything was great. I had no problems. There was a problem. Someone below me took care of it. I never had to hear about it. I was so high up on the food chain. I was so high up on the totem pole. And my empire was so secure that any little problems that happened, and there's always a problem, were always dealt with below me that I never had to even feel the weight of the anxiety of it. I was just smooth sailing. Verse 5. And I saw a dream which made me afraid. So his waking world is so peaceful and so calm, but as we'll see at the very end of this chapter, it's built on cruelty. It's built on a mistreatment of his citizens. It's built on his own evil rule and his evil reign. But from his perspective, it's fine. Below him is all kinds of misery. But he's feeling fine. So how do you make a king who is so powerful and has built up a pyramid so secure that he's at the capstone and everything's fine above him or around him? How do you humble him? A man could not do it. So God has to do it. And how does God do it? When he's at his most vulnerable, when he's asleep. I saw a dream which made me afraid. He's not afraid when he's awake, but at night the Lord gets him. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Um, troubled the external effect of fear. He had, you know, when you're afraid, you get shortness of breath, you get cold sweats, you start to, you know, to, to feel your heartbeat race. And then the king made him, uh, or the king was afraid. God made him afraid. The internal effects, paranoia, anxiety, wondering what's real, what's not, what's happening, what's not. What does all this mean as we're about to get to? Verse 6. Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. We've been here before. This is not new to Nebuchadnezzar or to the reader of the book of Daniel. We've just went over this back in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar just went over this. It was early in his reign. We're later in his reign. But you don't just forget a situation like what happened. I mean, he made a big decree. He's going to kill all the wise men. It was a big whole thing. Lots of paperwork. He remembers what happened in chapter 2. 
And now he has a reason to remember all of the details. Because it seems like he forgot one big detail of chapter 2, which is, oh yeah, God is the God over all the gods. He kind of forgot that part, but now he's going to be reminded. And so it all kind of comes back to him again. Chapter 2, redo. Verse 6, he says, or uh, rather, verse 5. Yeah, I had a dream which made him afraid. And so he does what he did back in chapter 2. Read verse 6 with me. Therefore I made a decree to all the wise men of Babylon before me, that might make that that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Um, you know, you would think that he maybe would have learned his lesson from chapter two, where he brought those wise men in and they fell flat on their face and couldn't do anything for him, so he had to go get Daniel. You think he would have skipped right to Daniel, especially because after what happened in chapter two, that's why he promoted Daniel. That's why he gave him the job he did. You're going to be the head over the magi. So why would you not go straight to him? I don't know the answer to that question. I do know he falls back on his old habit. He falls back on what's convenient. Maybe that's the answer. And he calls in his wise men. You notice here, he doesn't tell them, tell me the dream, like he did in chapter 2. He doesn't play that game. I don't know if he deliberately remembers. Well, these guys can't even tell me. But I'll, I'll just cut to the chase and tell them. If, if he just forgot that part, or if he was just so panicked and so worried about it that he didn't even want to play the game of, do you know what I dreamed or not? I'm just going to tell you, and you tell me anything. Just give me anything that might be of some comfort. Because, look, I don't know Nebuchadnezzar. I never met the guy. Probably never will. But he strikes me as the kind of person who is not mentally stable. But I want to believe that somewhere in there is at least a kernel of sanity where he can realize these guys that work for me, their only job is just to tell me what I want to hear, which is like 90% of the people who work for someone that powerful. It's just yes men all the way down. And so he probably has to somewhere in his mind be thinking, I'll bring these guys in, I'll tell them when I dreamed, and they'll they'll tell me, hush little baby, don't say a word, it's all going to be okay, it just means you're the best dog, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, I can sleep. That's what he wants, but that's not what he's going to get. So let's see that. Verse 7. Then came in the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, and had told the dream before them, but they could not make known to me the interpretation, there, or, excuse me, they did not make known to me, big distinction, the interpretation thereof. He invites the same group of yahoos he did before. Astrologers, or rather magicians, people who work cons and sleights of hand. Astrologers, people who read the stars to divine signs. Chaldeans, your standard wise old man for whom you get counsel. And soothsayers, palm readers, you know, let me tell you your fortune and future. So your standard generic run-of-the-mill wise people. And he tells them the dream, here's everything that I dream, which we haven't read yet. We're going to get there. And all they do is stand there. And the important phrase is not, they were not able. He doesn't say they could not. He says they simply did not tell me the interpretation of the dream. I told them what I dreamed. They seemed to get it. And nobody said a word. Which, if I'm the king, that's going to freak me out a little bit. Verse 8. And at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar. According to the name of my God. The man's not a converted person. Okay? Let's all recognize that. He... he well, let's finish the verse. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and before whom I told the dream, saying, dot, dot, dot. Right, now, how does he describe Daniel post-interpretation? We're writing, Daniel's recording this as the, you know, secretary of the king. So after the whole ordeal has happened, he's back on his throne, the whole thing is behind him, and he's recording it for posterity. And how does he describe him? Belteshazzar gives him his pagan name. He describes what the pagan name means. He's the prince of my gods, and he is inspired by the holy gods. So he, he does not at all describe Daniel with any kind of a perspective 
of the one God of Judah. All right. So even though he's going to go through this whole thing, and even though he's going to acknowledge Jehovah, he is going to come out of it still not recognizing Jehovah's supreme oneness over everything. He is only slightly better than every other pagan ruler. Because if you just polled them, if you just polled all the pagan rulers all over this area and all over this time when they were rising and conquering and falling and so forth, and you ask them, do you believe in that guy's God? Do you believe in that nation's God? Do you believe in those gods? Yes, 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 yes would be the answer. You're not going to get any of these pagan gods or pagan kings saying, I don't believe in this nation's gods. I don't believe his gods exist. I don't believe their gods exist. They believe because they're pagans. It's in their nature to just believe in all kinds of gods. What they get and what they say is, but my gods are better than your gods. That's why they made such a big deal about when they conquered this land over here or there. They would go into their sacred places, destroy their temples, ransack their holy sacraments, take them out for themselves and give them as a trophy to their gods as a way of saying, I conquered them and my gods conquered their gods. So it's not a matter of belief in the existence of God. It's rather an acknowledgement of the authority of God, which is still a problem today with a lot of people who are convinced that just by acknowledging the existence of God, that God somehow owes them salvation. But no, God doesn't have to save me just because I recognize that he exists. That's that's the most obvious. Of course he exists. Look at the sky. He exists. He made it. He painted it every sunset. So of course he exists. And me just telling him, imagine the height. I'm off track entirely, but I don't care. The, the height of the arrogance to stand before God and say, I know you're there. Please save me now. And they probably wouldn't even say please. Is insanity. God does not just want you to tell him what he already knows about himself. You acknowledge his authority. And if you do, will you obey him? Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the existence of God. He even will acknowledge the power of Jehovah. But he doesn't set God up as supreme. Because he still calls him just the one of the gods who's inspired Daniel and made him really special. But Daniel is named after my God. My God. Baal. Now, he is, again, the end of verse 8. He is the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. That's his way of saying the holy gods, whatever and whomever, however they are that Daniel worships, they have given the special power. And so I told him the dream, saying, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubles thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. You know, it's funny. Do you see that? With his run-of-the-mill, you know, loser magicians, he just says, all right, guys, I'm going to tell you what I dreamed. Give me something. So he tells them, and he gets nothing. Daniel, whom he knows can do this, he doesn't tell him. He says, tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation. It, maybe it's just a subconscious thing. He didn't even realize that he did it. But whether it's conscious or subconscious, he acknowledges Daniel and Daniel's God is legit. And his, you know, group of losers, their gods can't do it. So he says, tell me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Verse 10. Thus were the visions of my head in my bed. I saw. And he's going to tell them anyway, but the point stands. I behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. So let's do this. No, I'll do it later. I'm going to hold on to it so I don't forget I'm going to draw in a second. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven. That's That word means the sky. Does everyone's Bible say heaven in verse 11? Sky. Is this sky? Good. That's the better word. It doesn't mean the place where God lives. It's He reaches up to the sky. Big, big, big tree. 
and the side of it was to the end of all the earth. That does not mean that the people back then believed in a flat earth with four corners and everything. It just means wherever you are, this tree was so big you could see it, which obviously on a spheroid is impossible because if the tree is here and I'm down here, I'm not seeing it. But it's a vision, it's a metaphor, it's, it's you know, saturated with, with metaphor. Anywho, verse 12. The leaves of the tree were fair, the fruit thereof much, lots of fruit, and in it was meat for all. Who was the all? Well, the beasts of the field had shadow under, the fowls of the birds, uh, the fowls of the heaven sky dwelt in the branches thereof, and all the flesh, all of, uh, animals were fed from it. 13. I'm not going to give the interpretation until we get there. Let's read it. 13. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. The King James says, a watcher and a holy one. What does your Bible say? Messenger. What do you got? Messenger. Messenger. Does anybody have the word holy in theirs? Mm -hmm. What do you I have? Do. What does it say? I got the English Standard Version. Um, it says, Behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. All right, so even in that phraseology, it's one being just described in two ways. A, not a watcher, and also there was a, like, two different, it's one. It's one being described here as a watcher and a holy one. I think that's what she says. And what is a different translation? Is that basically it? All right. So in the, in, the, um, in the LXX, the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which Jesus used, so it's obviously bona fide, um, it translates this as just a watchful angel, or another way to put it, an angel whose job was to be a watchman. An angel whose job, and a watchman is not just a guy who watches, or an angel who watches. A watchman is also one who sees and then responds with a, a shout, a herald of some kind, someone who will proclaim, I see it and then I tell what I've seen. That's a watchman, all right? So here's an angel who's doing the job of a watchman. Well, we're, we're coming in and we're meeting this angel having already done the watching, and now he's doing the, the saying. He's going to say something. He's going to make a decree. He's going to order a command, and then he's also going to say a big statement. So that's what you're reading here. A, an angel whose job was to be a watchman, herald of some kind. Um, yeah, come down from heaven. Come out of the sky, which in this case is also heaven. Verse 14. He cried aloud, that's his job, and said thus, Cut down the tree, and cut off its branches, and shake its leaves, and scatter its fruit, and let the beast get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. So, we're watching this tree, which, uh, it, it, we don't see it grow, it's just a tree is big, and it gets even bigger. It's, it was already big. We're not watching it from sapling. We're seeing this tree that's so massive, everyone can see it. And we're seeing all of its fruit. It's like we're just slowly admiring it piece by piece. We see how big it is. We see how far reaching it is. We see all the animals that rest in its shadow. We see the fruit that feeds it. We see the birds that are nesting within it. It's just the best tree you could ever imagine. And then out of right field comes this angel and it's got this message that says, cut it down. Now, have you ever had a dream where you didn't understand what was going on? But you felt uneasy. Like, you, have you ever had the dream where you didn't know it was a nightmare until it was a nightmare? And you, like, you had that split-second thought, which is, oh, I think this is about to be a nightmare. And then it is, and suddenly you're being chased by the guy with the machete. Have you ever had the dream like that? Have you ever had the dream where you're in the dark, dark hallway, and you turn around, and you see a guy, and you have no reason to think it's bad, but you just feel nervous, you feel anxious, okay? You ever had the dream where you just know it's not good without understanding it? Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this thing which for all indications should make him feel good. It's this wonderful tree that's happy and serving everything. 
But hearing this or seeing this angel come in, this feeling of trepidation and this nervousness and this anxious feeling, and even without understanding it, hearing him say, cut down the tree, you don't know what it means. You don't know if it references you in any way. You just see this tree, and this angel says, cut this tree down and shoo away all the animals and chop up its branches and scatter all its fruit. I mean, just completely decimate this thing. And you're Nebuchadnezzar. You've been staring at this, and you see this happen, and you start to feel flutters and think, oh, I think this might be a nightmare and it's not a nightmare. It's actually a vision. And it's not just a vision. It's actually a prophecy. And he's going to experience this in first hand. We'll get there in a minute. But that's what the angel says. But the angel still talks. Verse 15. Still speaking, the angel says, Nevertheless, leave the stump of its roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let its portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Go back to the beginning of this verse. There's a lot to unpack here. So, verse 14, cut it down, chop its branches, scatter its fruit, shoo away the animals, make the birds fly away. All right? But leave the stump. We're not going to completely destroy it. We're just going to, it's, the metaphor's backwards because we're cutting from the top, but it's like cutting the legs out from under it, even though it's a tree, so you're cutting the top out from above it. Right? But it's the same metaphor, okay? We're going to prevent it from growing anymore. We're going to shackle it so that it cannot grow back to its massive size that it was. We're going to uh, stunt it. There, that's a good one. We're going to stunt it and shackle it down so that no one can enjoy its, its benefits anymore. It's, it's not producing fruit anymore. It's not growing branches anymore. It's just a shell of its former self. It's just a stump. And it's going to have to remain there. Look at what it says. To be, the King James says, wet with the dew of heaven. It's going to just draw its nutrients from the moist earth below it. That's it's all it's going to do. It's, it's like on life support. It's just surviving. It's not thriving. It's not growing. It's just hanging on. All right. So between verses 14 and 15, you go from so big everyone can see it to just barely surviving. That's quite the swing. Right? And then, here's where it gets wild. The last phrase, the King James words it as, let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. How do you read that last clause? Let him graze with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let him graze. Now, please, Margaret, please tell us, the class, how does a tree graze? Well, it's not going to be a tree. It's exactly, that's the simplest answer is the correct one. It's not a tree anymore. It was a tree. Have you ever had the dream where the tree turned into a cow? Surely we've all had that one, right? That's this dream. I'm looking at this tree. I'm hearing the angel say, chop it up, slice it down, throw it away, whatever. Shackle it. Let it draw its nutrients from the ground. And then, suddenly, nope, now it's a cow. Let it graze with the rest of the cows. Well, we'll see. It's not specifically actually a cow, but that's the closest approximation to how this promise is going to be fulfilled. But you get, you just, I can't even fathom what Nebuchadnezzar is seeing. This is just the, the, the text. It's just the phrasing. And even that is mind-blowing. 16. We're not done. The angel still talks. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him. You know, it's no longer an it. It's no longer a tree. Now it's a person. Until let seven times pass over him. This, without being given the interpretation yet, we're given the clues that this tree ain't just a tree, right? Now you don't have to be Freud to know this tree represents something, and it's a him. It's a person who is going to have its heart, its mind, which is what the heart is in your Bible. Let its mind be changed to an animal's mind, and let it exist in this state until seven times does everyone's bible say seven times does anybody's bible say seven years seven periods periods seven periods seven seasons but does anyone say years okay good 
You wouldn't be, you'd be surprised, though, how many interpretations jump and presume years. But and we may get there next week, but when we get to the end of this, there, there's no historical reason to conclude this is years. Okay? Doesn't mean that the word the phrase could not could not have been interpreted that way, but when you look at the surrounding context, there's no reason to think it does mean years. What does it mean? Well, all we're given right now is just seven periods, seven units, seven blocks of measurement. What that is, we'll find out. We haven't interpreted it yet. The angel's still talking. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the whole by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets it up over uh, sets it sets up over it the basest of men. All right, mouthy wordy verse. Let's break this down into two parts. The first part of verse seventeen. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the holy ones. What does your Bible say? The sentence. I go, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. All right. That's parallelism, which is where you say the same thing in two different ways for emphasis sake. Right? Um, sentence is like judgment. Decision. Judgment. All right. Here's this tree. It's been cut down. It's been shackled. It's going to now suddenly become an animal-like thing that's going to graze for seven periods. And that is a judgment, a punishment rendered for crimes committed. All right, That's a judgment by a judge. And who's the judge? The Most High. And why is the judgment being given? Well, we see from whom it's being given, the heralds of the king. Well, who is the king? The Most High who rules in over supreme in comparison to the kingdoms of men. And he gives it, gives what? Kingdoms to whomsoever he will. Now, I haven't even gotten the interpretation yet. And already I'm putting it together, which tells me I now get why Nebuchadnezzar's yahoos, who typically couldn't interpret, you know, Twin Peaks, much less the visions of Nebuchadnezzar, why they immediately said, I don't think I'm going to take this one. Because even they were able to put together what was going on here. They may not have understood all the little particulars, but they heard what we're hearing, which is, I saw this big tree, and angel said, cut it down. And it says, I'm doing this so that you will know that the Most High gives kingdoms to whomever he wills. And I'm thinking, well, here's my boss. He's a king. Pretty arrogant. Doesn't really respect the Most High. Is big and vast in his power, like a tree, being cut down, being put in his place. Yeah, I'm not going to tell him what this dream means. Because I'm here to give him good news. So that's why when he told them, none of them were willing to say anything. Because even they understood the interpretation. This one's not hard. This one's easy. Like when Bill Gates says, I'm trying to work on why toilets stink and why we, what we can do about it. Well, toilets stink because we poop in them, Bill Gates. This one's not hard. Right? I don't know why he's working on that one. We have a debt crisis, but that's what he's working on. But it's like Nebuchadnezzar, it's, it's got this vision. He, well, there must be some grand explanation. No, the simplest one's the correct one. You're a big tree, and you're about to be cut down. That's what he's saying here. It's obvious just by reading verse 17. You, and verse 17 is the, the central. Like when you have those circles and you go to the middle, chapters 4 and 5, the exact, exact middle of that bullseye is 417. This is what this book is about. Now, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he is learning this lesson the hard way, that God is in control, that God rules over the kingdoms. Okay. But Nebuchadnezzar is going to be dead in about 40 years, right? So that's it. It's being written down for me 2,500 years later to remember that God is still in control. 
no matter what government I'm under, no matter what kingdom I live in, no matter what empire or emperor I have to have be under the thumb of, God is the one in control. And if he can humble Nebuchadnezzar, whose reign and power was so vast, it was like a tree that the branches reached to all the earth. If God could cut that tree down, if I'm safe in God, I don't need to worry who's the king in power. That's the lesson. That's this verse, four, this verse uh, 17. That's the thesis statement of the whole book. So this is being done so that you may know the most high rules in the kingdoms of men and that he gives those kingdoms to whomsoever he wills and sets up it, that kingdom over the basest. He gives kingdoms and provides for the humblest, not the arrogant, the basest of them. I have lowliest. Yeah, lowliest, humblest, Humble, yeah. Um, basest is the idea. Um, draw the tree for us. I'll get in there. I'll get when I get to the interpretation. Somebody's eager for Bob Ross time. Verse 18. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, king, have seen. Now you, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof. For as much as all the wise men in my kingdom were not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. I would quibble with this phrasing. Your wise men could, your wise men chose not to. And, and we're going to see that play out here with Daniel. Because he tells the dream to Daniel, and he says, I know you know it, so tell me. He thinks his wise men didn't say it because they didn't know it. But let's notice the reaction of Daniel. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was, the King James says, astonished. Not astonished, astonished. What does your Bible say? Appalled. Appalled? Dismayed. Yeah. Gobsmacked. He, he was so shocked with horror horror struck that he couldn't speak right it's not just startled or surprised but it carries with it the connotation of i don't even i can't even speak i'm so shocked by this all right and he was like that upon hearing the vision for one hour and his thoughts troubled him so the king spoke and said to him belteshazzar don't let the dream or the interpretation trouble you that's easy for you to say it ain't about daniel it's about you you're the one who's going to hear this vision i'm the one who's got to tell it belteshazzar answered and said and the King James translation really butchers the phrasing here. But it says, My Lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to your enemies. Which makes it sound like he's saying your dream is about your enemies. He's not. He's saying, I wish your dream was about your enemies. I wish I could say that everything you dreamed about was about your enemies. But it's not about them. It's about you. But if it was about your enemies, then it'd be a good dream. Because you want the worst for your enemies. Unfortunately, it's about you. So... You know, get ready for that. What what does your Bible say at the end of verse uh, 19? To thine adversaries. Yeah, yeah. It may be about them, or I wish you could put it on them, the burden that it carries with it. Yeah, that's the idea. Verse 20. The tree that you saw, which grew and was strong, whose height reached to the sky, and the sight there was to all the earth. He's just restating it whose leaves were fair and fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the birds of the heaven... I don't need to draw it. You, know, you can visualize it. Uh, the birds of the heaven had their habitation. So here's this... Okay. So you've got like... <laughs> like that, right? you got your island here. You know, like that. All right. Now whatever. All right. So you got... Da, 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 India. Alright. You got black sea, Caspian Sea. Okay. So that's a tree? No, it's not a tree. Keep up. This is this is the world. Alright? 
Horn of Africa. This is the world as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned. Horn of Africa, Egypt, Nile, Mediterranean, Black Sea, Caspian Sea, Arabia, Judea, Babylon. All right. So you see a tree. Oh, I see it. Well, thank you. See, it's all <laughs> I see it. These branches are so big, they, they stretch out. I should have done this in multiple colors. They, they stretch out all the way as far as the world can see it. So if I'm a dude here, I'm feeling the influence of Nebuchadnezzar. If I'm over here, I'm feeling the influence of Nebuchadnezzar. If I'm down here, I feel the influence of Nebuchadnezzar. The, 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 brink, the, the uh, extent of his branches, the shade that it produces, stretches over the world, which as far as they're concerned, is the extent of this market board, right? So it's big and it provides fruit, but I want you to know it's not written from the perspective of this being a bad thing. It is a bad thing because the guy is bad. What he's doing with it is bad. But the potential is there for much good. It's, it's described at first in a good sense. It produces fruit for all these animals. It produces shade for all these animals. It produces a home for all the birds of these animals. Everybody is benefiting. Everybody is prospering. What we won't see until the end of this is a lot of people, particularly the poor, are suffering. And it is to the poor that God speaks and addresses concerning Nebuchadnezzar's abuse of his power. But that's at the end of this. So, verse 22, this big old tree is you, O king. You are grown and become strong, for your greatness is grown, and it reaches unto the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. As far as we know what there is, your effect is there. Verse 23. Angel. And whereas you saw a watcher and a holy one come down from heaven. I won't draw a chainsaw because it doesn't have one. He yells for one. You saw a watcher and a holy one come down from heaven saying, Cut the tree down and destroy it and leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth. It with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field and let it be wet with the dew of the heaven. And let its portion be with the beast of the field till seven times pass over him. Which we just read this. He's restating it. You saw this angel make that declaration. Well, here's what that means, verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king. I'm going to tell you what this means. Not from Baal, it's not from any other god, it's from the Most High. 25. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. I will tell you, Nebuchadnezzar, what this means. We're not in the vision now. We're in Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's court, pointing at the king and saying, here's what this means for you. You are going to be driven from men. You are going to have your dwelling with the beasts of the field. You are going to eat grass like an oxen. You are going to be feeding off the dew of the heaven, the grass from the dew of the heaven, till seven times pass over you. It was till seven times pass over this tree. Well, you're the tree. So it's going to pass over you these seven times, as long as this lasts. Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. Now, if I'm Nebuchadnezzar, I'm hearing that, and I'm thinking, wait, this is totally unnecessary. Back in chapter 2, I acknowledged your God. Back in chapter 3, I acknowledged your God. Yes, and in between chapter 2 and 3, you tried to murder a free little Jewish boys because you forgot to acknowledge God anymore. Well, after chapter 3, I started acknowledging him again. Uh-huh, and what's going to happen? As we'll see in a minute, he's going to forget all over again. And because he keeps forgetting, God's going to remind him. Not just for his sake, but for all of our sakes to be reminded. This is so critical for the Jews in exile to read this account. Even though they were there, some of them were, and lived through it. And even after the fact, who are still going to be in exile under Persian rule, they're still going to need to remember this. 
They're going to need to know it was bad, it was terrible, it may be bad and terrible again. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. I know who is in control. These Jews need to hear this. And so do we still today. That God is in control. That God sets up and causes kingdoms to rise and fall. Pause. That doesn't mean, by the way, that every time a kingdom or an empire or a nation does wickedly, that God is moving those pieces and causing wicked. God is not the cause of wickedness. What it means is two things. Big picture, when the kingdom rises and falls, God's will is being done. And he is using that for his will. And when a kingdom or a nation or whomever does wickedly, God's not causing that wickedness, but God will use that wickedness to do his good. God used the wickedness of Rome. He used the wickedness of Judas. He used the wickedness of Pontius Pilate, etc., to accomplish his will in the death of Christ. He will use the wickedness of evil to do his ultimate good. But the point is, whatever the what happens in the meanwhile, the end result will be God's will being done. 26. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, your kingdom, the King James says, shall be sure, shall be um, certain, secure unto you. After that, uh, you shall have known that the heavens do rule. In other words, you're going to be humbled like nobody's ever been humbled. You're going to be smacked down royally. But this is not going to be the end of your kingdom. It's not going to be even the end of your royal line or the end of your personal reign. Babylon's going to keep on ticking. You're going to reclaim your throne. This is just, from God's temporal vantage point, just a momentary spanking. This is just a quick little, you know, discipline, a reminder of who's really in control. And again, you think, well, what's the point then if it's a short term? So I can be reminded that God's in control. So, verse 27. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto you, and break off your sins with righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of your tranquility. If you, if you people could stand before a joint session of Congress, if you could stand, you know, like where the president stands for a State of the Union address, and you're addressing the governing body of the United States, what would be your message? And now Daniel gets to stand before the king, the whole governing body in one. He stands before that throne. He delivers this interpretation. He delivers this message. And it's bad news already. Nebuchadnezzar, not the stablest person. And now Daniel has to put some kind of a bow on it. He has to put some kind of an application on it. He has to say, when they said we're going to cut this tree off and you're just going to be a stump, and you're going you're gonna to barely survive and barely hang on. But if you want your reign to go more smoothly, here's what you need to do. What does Daniel say? Does he wimp out? Does he him and haul? Does he hedge his bets? No. He looks the king in the eyes and he says, you need to do better. You need to be kinder. You need to repent. You need to stop sinning. And to specify just one thing, he says, you need to take care of the poor. That's it. Of all the things you could say to Nebuchadnezzar, like stop burning children for not bowing to your golden idols. What, what he zeroes in on is you need to take care of the poor. Now, I'm not saying there aren't problems in every country that need to be addressed. But I'm saying when Daniel had his opportunity to mention a problem, it was take care of the poor. Somebody read for me, please, Isaiah chapter 10. I think it's like verses 1, 2, and 3. Isaiah 10, verses 1, 2, and 3. If you're in Daniel, go back like 150 pages. <laughs> Daniel 10, verses 1 through 3. Daniel, Isaiah. I'm sorry, Isaiah. Pardon me. Isaiah. 
Did I say Daniel every single time? I meant Isaiah the whole time. Go back 150 pages to Isaiah chapters, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Uh huh. One through three. Woe unto them that de that decree unrighteous decrees. Woe unto the lawmakers who make bad laws. Keep going. And to the writers that write um, perverseness, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. That's two. Oh, read verse three, please. And what will you do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? God is going to punish you, rulers. God is going to punish you, Congress or king or president or whoever. And what is on God's mind, and this is repeated throughout Isaiah. It's like this is the beginning of the book, too. What is on God's mind when he looks down at the sinful nation? He says, shame on you lawmakers whose laws take advantage of the poor whose laws uh, betray the needy of the, the widows and the orphans and the poor. What, what is pure religion? What is pure religion, James 1? Pure religion and undefiled before God is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unspotted from all the world. Well, how do I keep myself unspotted? By doing righteous things. And what's the one thing that James zeroes in on? What is pure religion? To take care of the fatherless and the widows, to seek out those who are in need, typically the poor among us. And that's what Daniel says here. Daniel 4, verse 27. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, if you want to have some tranquility, if you want to have peace and not be cut off like this, do better with your reign. Verse 29. Twelve months later. Twelve months later. The clock spins. He walked in the palace of the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar did. And the king spoke and said, if he had suspenders, he would have popped them. And he said, boy, isn't Babylon great? And I've built for the house of the kingdom by my might of my power and for the honor of my majesty, my, 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 my. Look how great this place is. And it's all because of me, 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 me. <laughs> Meanwhile, the poor are screaming and crying and they're hungry. And it's like Yzma in the emperor's new group. You should have thought of that before you became peasants, right? That's what Nebuchadnezzar is. Well, I'm sorry you're peasants, but, you know, you got to be poor. Otherwise, you wouldn't be peasants. we got to have peasants. Verse 31, he cares nothing. And while he is saying this, mind you, this is in his mind, okay? He's just thinking to himself, aren't I just the best? He's walking and he's strutting and he's thinking to himself. And while the word is in the king's mouth, before he says it, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you. In other words, <laughs> you just lost your job. For a time, seven, you'll get it back. But for right now, we're going to take a time out. Now, if I'm Nebuchadnezzar, it's been a whole year, and nothing's happened. God hasn't done anything. There's been no punishment. The whole dream is forgotten, because of course it is. It was forgotten after chapter 2, which led him to start murdering people in chapter 3. It was forgotten in chapter 3, which led him here in chapter 4 to strut around thinking he's the bee's knees and God doesn't even exist. And now here, he had this vision. He had this dream. And in the dream, a voice from heaven says, I'm going to cut you down and humble you. Now, that's just in his dream. And as he's walking in his waking hours, he hears a voice saying, I'm about to cut you down. Wouldn't that freak you out if your dream, your bad dream, came true? And he hears this voice saying, 32, they are going to drive you from men. I've heard this before. And your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. 
and they will make you eat grass like oxen till seven times pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. I mean, he heard this in the dream and it freaked him out. And now awake, he hears it in reality. Oh man, knees are knocking, right? And it's going to happen. We're going to pick it up there. We'll finish the chapter and go into five next week. Any comments or questions from anybody before we leave? All right. 4.33 next week. Thank you all.